The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The reading today is Revelation 18. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a little measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the king of the earth who had committed sexual immorality, the kings of the earth who had committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade, and all those whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city, what was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. 
and the sound of the harpist and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be, will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Alleluia! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who, hear, you who fear him, small and great. About half a century after John wrote the Revelation, there was an order that gave a speech to the Roman imperial court named uh, Aelius Aristides. And in this speech before the Roman imperial court, um, he calls Rome the trading center of mankind. It's clear from the speech that he is absolutely in awe of Rome and of the Roman Empire. Uh, listen to what he says about the economy. He says, It's possible to see cargoes from India and ornaments from the barbarian world beyond. Rome's farmlands are Egypt, Syria, all of Africa, which is cultivated. The arrivals of ships, they never stop. Everything comes together here. All this wealth, all this power, this global influence leads him to say that, you know, it's hard to say if Rome is simply the greatest city of its time or if Rome is the greatest empire ever. Alias looks at uh, Rome's wealth, and he's absolutely captivated by it. He looks at Rome's power, and he is absolutely captivated by it. Well, Revelation 18, our text this morning, also talks about the wealth. It talks about the prosperity it talks about the strong economy, and it talks about the global reach of Rome, but it's fair to say that it is definitely a different take. Uh, it is definitely a different position. Uh, Alias looks at Rome's wealth, and he's captivated by it. He sees life. He sees um, an environment for human flourishing our text today looks at Rome, and all it sees is death and destruction. 
I think the big question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is that as you and I look at the Romes of the world, that as you and I look at the Babylons of the world, what do we see? Is it the vision of Alias or is it the vision of Revelation 18? Uh, with the time that I have this morning, I, I simply want us to walk through these four movements that I see in the text in hope that the Holy Spirit would give us the vision that Revelation gives us, a heavenly vision of reality. So if you have a Bible or if you have your phone with you, if you want to turn to the text now, it might help to, to follow along. Uh, let's start by just looking at verses 1 to 3 together. Verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a hunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast, for all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Okay. Now, when I say this statement, there will come a time when the United States of America will end. And the security and the comfort and the prosperity that it provides taken away. How does that make you feel? What, what emotions are coming up for you when I say that? Uh, are you troubled? Are you angry? Do you want to punch me in the face? Um, do you feel vulnerable? Or, or how about this? Does it sound absolutely ridiculous to you? Does it sound unimaginable to you? I asked this question at the beginning of my sermon this morning because I want Revelation 18 to exert its force on us this morning. Um, for a citizen of Rome to hear that there would come a time when Rome would come to an end and all the prosperity and all the power it had would be taken away would just sound absolutely ridiculous and unimaginable to the original readers. They would say, do you not see the power? Do you not see the global influence? Do you not see that Rome is the greatest nation ever? Do you not see the security that we have? The angel announces in verse 2, fallen Fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, what I'm about to say next, I think is so important for understand, to, to understand what's going on here. 
Um, in, in this series, Jonathan has brought out over and over again uh, that Babylon is a Roman reality, uh, but it's not just a Roman reality, it's also a present reality. Right? So first you do have the Roman reality, that John wants his readers, when they look at Rome, to see a type of Babylon. Um, Rome resembled Old Testament Babylon in being proud, and being idolatrous, and being an oppressive society that persecuted the people of God. Um, Babylon was a society that seemed too powerful to ever end, right? Um, too powerful to overcome. But ultimately, it was an empire that God ended. Um, but Babylon does not simply just refer, refer to Rome here. Um, Babylon is also a pattern in our reality. A pattern in our reality. So, from the death and resurrection of Jesus um, to his glorious return, Babylon-like societies and systems and cultures will rise up and they will fall and then another will take its place and it will rise up and it will fall and then another will take its place and it will rise up and it will fall. And when these Babylon-like societies who worship their economic security and military power fall in history, it anticipates God's final judgment when he will finally remove all Babylons and they will be no more. Babylons will come and go leading up to the day when Jesus returns and replaces them all finally with his kingdom. Um, so why do these Babylons face this end? Why do these Babylons have this judgment? Well, one reason that John reveals in verse 3, if you look, is he essentially says, John says this, I don't say this, he essentially says that Rome is like a wealthy prostitute. And Rome is a wealthy prostitute that seduces rulers and seduces other kingdoms. And she seduces uh, merchants with what? With wealth. With economic security. If you will worship the Roman gods, if you will give allegiance to Rome, if you will give your heart to Rome, then Rome will give you the security and the wealth that you long for. This is what Rome's do. This is what Babylon's do. They seduce the world to trust in their ways and to trust in their power and to trust in their wealth. But their wealth cannot give the security that they say it can. It's an illusion. It's an illusion of security. In verse 2, we get this picture of fallen Babylons, um, and it's not a pretty one. Uh, Think elephant graveyard in the Lion King. Uh, think tumbleweeds, crows, scavenger animals. Um, think standing on a hill and staring at a city the morning after a nuclear bomb has gone off. That's the image of fallen Rome, of fallen Babylon that John gives here. Um, God's judgment has stripped away all the beauty that leaves people in awe 
all the wealth, all the power. And there's just the skeletal remains. And what does our text say? It says it's death and demonic activity. It's intense. Finally, the outward glory is removed and we can see what's been going on all along. We see behind the veil to its substance and it's horrifying. It's horrifying. Um, So if we as the church of Jesus Christ are not to be seduced by the gods of wealth, by the gods of prosperity, by the gods of political power and economic security, then we must see the end. We must see fallen Babylon. We must see the illusion of security. And this takes us to the second movement in the text that I want to see. The text begins with the, fa- with the fall of Babylon, with its end, And then the text kind of plays out three things that happen in light of that fall. And so I want us to see these three things that happen in light of the fall of Babylon. Look at the first of me. Um, First we see that in light of the coming demise for Babylon, the people of God are exhorted to separate themselves from from the Babylonian system. Look at verses 4 and 5 of me. Verses 4 and 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are as heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Here at Shades Valley, we are part of a denomination. Not everyone knows that, so surprise. Um... We are part of the Mormon church. No, I'm totally kidding. We are... That one, was on, that one was on the fly. Maybe not a good decision. It's a joke, just to be clear. Um, <clears throat> at Shades Valley, we are part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. Now... Uh, you may not be familiar with it. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear evangelical. We're getting some bad press these days. Um, just to be clear, um, you are not an evangelical because you vote for a certain candidate. You are not an evangelical because you have a certain political affiliation. All right? We okay? Now that we've cleared that up, all right? Um, I think it's fair to actually go back and look at the roots of evangelicalism and to see the beginnings of evangelicalism as a desire for Christians to be in the culture but not of the culture. It was a desire of a group of Christians to enter into the public space, to enter into the public sphere and to maintain their convictions, to maintain their faith in love and humility, not um, mindlessly embracing everything that we see in culture, uh, but also at the same time, not like fundamentalists were doing, rejecting 
everything in culture. No, it was a desire to enter in and when there is something good in culture to affirm it and not only just to affirm it, to, to cultivate it and to see what God's doing in the world, but, but also to maintain Christian conviction and faithful witness to, to love and to serve the world. This vision is captivating to me. Well, why do I say this? I say this because I think it helps us grasp what's going on in verse 4. Um, when the people of God are urged to separate themselves from Babylon's. Right? Um, let's be clear. This is not a fundamentalist preacher's dream. Okay? Um, the book of Revelation does not call Christians to completely remove themselves from society. Rather, it calls Christians to stay in the culture, to stay in the mess, while lovingly holding the truth of the gospel. Um, stay in the mess and, and suffer. Stay in the mess and be misunderstood. Stay in the mess and serve and love and bear witness to Jesus Christ with everything that you are. So, if that's what the book of Revelation teaches, and I think it does, then what's going on in verse 4 of this call to separate? Well, I think here there is this call for those who have gone in the culture but are of the culture. It's those who have embraced everything. It's those who have compromised their faith. Um, do you remember the letter to the church at Sardis earlier? Um, Jesus looks at the church and he says, hey, listen, on the outside, you look pretty good. Uh, your website looks dope. Um, cultural standards, you look pretty amazing. Uh, but you're kind of a corpse in expensive clothing. Do you remember what Jesus, this is Jesus here, says to the church at Laodicea? He says, you say that you are rich, and you are prosperous, and that you need nothing, but you don't see the reality. What's the reality? Well, you're, you're poor. You're poor. You've compromised your faith for cultural position, for a seat at the table of power, for money. In, in each of these churches, Rome, Babylon, has seduced the members by showing them what? It's wealth. It's wealth. This is a big part of the temptation to compromise. Rome says, worship our gods and give allegiance to us, and we will give you all these things. So it's a warning, and it's a wake-up call. For those who have compromised to separate themselves, you see? Um, but it's not just that. And I really think we need to hear the second part of what's going on here. Um, it's also an encouraging word to faithful Christians. It's an encouraging word to faithful Christians. Um, it, gives to, it gives encouragement to those who have suffered for the sake of the gospel. Because... They need it. They're weary. They're, they're tired. And their life 
would be so much more comfortable if they would just give in. If they would just abandon Jesus, things would be so much easier. Things would be so much better. And here, John says, don't do it. But why? He says, because justice is coming. Hold on. Because justice is coming. Do you, do you ever feel that the wealthy and the politically powerful run the world? Do you feel like a cog in the machine? Are you tired of reading story after story where the rich and the powerful use the innocent, the vulnerable, and the poor for their own gains? Do you get angry when you see the wealthy and the powerful again and again buy a verdict? Are you tired of hearing about companies who make billions and yet treat their workers like cattle? Are you tired of hearing about companies who make their wealth by degrading women and children and the most vulnerable of society? I have good news for you this morning. Verses 5 and 7 reveal that God is not turning a blind eye to any of this. God sees it all and he remembers it all. He sees it and he remembers. The image in the text is sin piling up to him. It speaks to the sin of Babylon in, in, in Rome, but it also speaks to the fact that God has not forgotten a single one. And the verses that come afterwards, they all emphasize justice. That's what they all point to. It's all pointing to perfect justice. In the age of the church, Babylon's in their pride and in their selfishness will continue to hurt others and use others for their own pockets. But we say this morning that evil and injustice and the sin that brings death does not have a future. We say this morning that the rich and the powerful do not run the show. Jesus Christ runs the show. Look this morning to the horizon, church, because justice is coming. It looks like God isn't watching. It looks like he's checked out, but he is not. For every injustice, there will be justice. Have you had injustice happen to you? Justice is coming. You may not see it in your life, but know that it is coming. It's coming. So hold on to Jesus. <laughs> Don't give in to the systems that oppress. All right, this takes us to our next movement. The second movement, or the third movement that I want to talk about is after Babylon falls, after its demise, we see these three groups lament. These three groups lament. First, we see the kings. Babylon has fallen, and so the kings, they cry out like they're at a funeral. They cry out, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Next, we see the merchants. 
Revelation 18, 15 through 17, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. Finally, the mariners. What do they say? Remember the example from the beginning of the sermon? What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by their wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid to waste. I love that the children are crying right now because that echoes what's happening in this passage. They might be resonating with the text more than you are. I mean, it is, it is mourning. It is, it is sorrow. And it's important to know the nature of their sorrow. Um, they are not sorrowful because they see the sin of the city. Um, they're not sorrowful because they see their own sin. This is not repentance. They're not sorrowful because they're repenting. Why are they sorrowful? Because they have given their entire lives to that which is no more. Here are people that have benefited from Rome's economic system. And what they mourn is the loss of their own wealth and comfort. They sold their soul for the security of happiness. For the security and happiness, excuse me. And what's so sad is that it's gone in a flash. Everything that they have given their life to is gone. Is gone. There's so much happening in these laments. Um, there's no way that I can get to all of it this morning. It's, it's worth going back and reading on your own time. But there are just two brief observations that I want to point to in these laments. Um, the first, I think, is a prophetic word to our time in that in these laments, we see Rome's addiction to consumption. In these laments, we see Rome's addiction to consumption. Um, Rome was a society of self-indulgent opulence. It's a society that judges one's worth on the success that they have attained and the money that they have. Um, If you look in the text, if you look at verses 12 and 13, you'll see this long list of imports. Why this long list of imports uh, that no longer flow into Rome? Uh, John lists 28 imported items. Gold and silver from Spain, precious stones from India, pearls from the Persian Gulf, fine linen from Egypt, silk from China, wood from North Africa, tables made of Moroccan citrus wood and ivory, bronze from Corinth, steel swords and cutlery from Spain, and marble from Africa and Greece, and sweet-smelling ointments from Yemen, and cinnamon and spices from South Asia, imported cattle and sheep, and the list goes on and on, and you know how it ends? Slaves. That is human slaves. There's a New Testament scholar, a New Testament scholar. <laughs> There's a New Testament scholar by the name of Richard Bauckham 
that says, I don't think this list ending with human slaves is a coincidence. I think it's intentional. And I think that he's right. Um, This distinction here between this list of products and then ending with persons that are treated like products shows the dehumanizing effect that consumerism has had on Rome. That they sell people, humans. Consumerism, no matter the time and no matter the form, subtly dehumanizes us. It dehumanizes us and it causes us to dehumanize others. Why? Because it shapes us to be people that value possessions more than persons. It shapes us to be people that value the comfort and the prosperity that possessions give us more than other human lives. And when you start drinking from the cup of consumerism, it's intoxicating, isn't it? And all of a sudden, you find yourself going back to the bar for just one more drink, and just one more drink, and just one more drink. But it's never enough. And you end up existing in this stumbling, drunken light state where you become blind to the effect that it has on you. Can that not describe our time? It describes my life. That because of our culture and because we are in our culture in so many ways without realizing it, we end up drinking from the cup of consumerism and we don't even see that we're doing it. We don't even see the ways that it's shaping us and all we can think about is getting that next cup. Why? Because we think that if we have it, that it'll bring what? Happiness. Peace. Contentment. Um, I will never forget, I was at a huge Christian conference, and uh, the speaker of Charity Water, uh, excuse me, the founder of Charity Water got up and spoke. It's a guy by the name of Scott Harrison. Maybe some of you have heard of him. And he talked about before he started Charity Water, whose mission is to provide clean water to all. Um, and he said that he was a club promoter in New York City. And he was saying that he was getting paid tens of, thousand do- tens of thousands of dollars a night just to drink a certain beer at a club. Yeah. <laughs> and he said that there was this moment where he was on a trip And he was on a yacht in the Caribbean. And he was surrounded by models. And he was surrounded by wealthy people in society. And it was a big party. And he said he looked at everyone around him and he realized that everyone was miserable. I was a freshman in college at the time. I was like, I think he's making that up. He looked around, he said, everyone's miserable. And then he said, he looked at himself and he said that he was miserable. Um, Jesus, after his encounter with the rich young ruler, do you remember how the rich young ruler walks away? Sad. Sad. Because he could not place Jesus above his possessions. Why can't he do it? 
because he saw his possessions as the source of his happiness. And then in an ironic twist, in keeping his possessions, he walks away from Jesus what? Sad. (laughs) Sad. Money is a terrible God. (laughs) Money is a terrible God. It's a God that promises us happiness, the happiness that we desire, and it just leaves us in misery. And the inevitable sadness that someone experiences when they worship money is actually a foreshadowing event. That misery that experiences when we get everything we've ever wanted and it's not enough foreshadows the end of time where those who have put their trust in money and made money their God weep and are miserable. They weep and are miserable. This leads me to the second observation. And this is a word for the church. Um, I believe that the list of laments is also intended to wake up those Christians who are sleeping, those Christians who have compromised that I spoke of earlier. The the laments come right after the call to separate. Um, So John knows what he's doing, and I think it's fascinating because he kind of sets a trap here for his readers. So any reader that finds themselves sharing the perspective of those who are mourning or identifying with those who are mourning will find that they stand with the great prostitute Babylon and not the bride of Christ, not the holy city. It's intense and it's meant to be. It's meant to be a wake-up call. My prayer this entire past week as I've been preparing for this sermon is that God would open my eyes and God would open your eyes to the ways that we have gotten in bed with American consumerism. My prayer this week has been that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the ways that we have trusted in our country for security, wealth, and prosperity. My prayer this week has been that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the ways that we use others for our own financial gain. My prayer this week would be that God would wake us up. It is not inherently evil to be wealthy. That's not what I'm saying this morning. But I do want us to reflect on a temptation that comes with wealth. And that is pride and self-sufficiency. Now, I don't have pre-made answers to the questions that I just asked. And maybe that's what you want. And I get that. Flesh us out for us, Brad. I mean, these are hard questions. Recently, I remember one pastor saying in a sermon, for crying out loud, we can't go fill up a tank of gas without in some way contributing to evil in this world. To exist in modern society and to be able to function in any way, shape, or form is to in some way contribute to the evils of this world. I get that it is complicated, and I am right there in it with you. But my prayer, once again, is not the, not the word of guilt, not the word of shame, but that the Holy Spirit would lead us and convict us and show us the ways that we're bowing down to the money God. 
which show us the ways that we have been drinking from American consumerism and we don't even realize it. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't. But would you, would we as a church enter into this together and say, here is our heart, Lord. Would you show me what is true? Would you open my eyes to see what I cannot see, to see reality? And then would you enable me as a minister of justice to use the resources that you have given me, not for my own identity. I don't need to do that because I am found in Jesus Christ, but for the good of others. That is my prayer this morning. And finally, that leads me to the last movement. The last movement where we see that in light of Babylon's fall, the people of God rejoice. In light of Babylon's fall, the people of God rejoice. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me, if you can. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. There's an image here, an Old Testament image, rooted in Jeremiah 51, where Jeremiah tells his servant to take a scroll containing Babylon's judgment, tie that scroll to a stone, and throw it in the middle of the Euphrates. Um, This declares Babylon will sink and it will not rise up again. There will not be a fall and the rise, there will be a fall and it will be no more. Um, But what's interesting in our image, and I do think it's worth on reflecting this morning, is uh, John doesn't say stone, he says millstone. Does that bring another image to mind for you? Do you remember Jesus' warning that whoever causes his little ones to stumble would be better off having a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the sea? It's red letters there. I've been thinking about this. It's almost as if John is saying, and this is heavy, woe to societies who use their wealth and military power to cause the world to stumble. Woe to societies who use their wealth and their military power to cause the world to stumble. John says, woe to you because there's coming a judgment day when Babylon's will be no more. And because of this no more Babylon's, The people of God rejoice. And the lament and the sorrow and the whining of the three groups, it's almost like it's set right by the people of God rejoicing. And I think that's, I think that's intentional. Um, the judgment causes sorrow for the groups, but it causes rejoicing for the people of God. Now, I want to be clear here. Um, the rejoicing doesn't come out of some selfish spirit of revenge. It's not out of that, but rather 
It's because God has done what he said he was going to do. The focus is not on Babylon's suffering. The focus is on the execution of God's perfect justice. It's about God and that he is who he said he is and that he has done what he has said he's going to do. Finally, as the church of Jesus Christ, you and I are people who mourn on this earth. Sometimes we get this weird thing in our heads where to come to church, to worship, means that we don't mourn. I don't know where we got that from. The Psalms are just filled with lament. The Psalms are filled with the prayers and the songs of the people of God being things that kind of make us uncomfortable. Things like, how long, O Lord? Do you pray like that? How long, O Lord? Hey, how much longer? God, do you see what's going on? Do you see the injustice? How much longer? Is this going to happen? Do you not see the innocent suffer? Do you not see the rich and the powerful um, take advantage and abuse those who are incapable of getting out? Like, where are you? What are you doing? I mean, we do this in, in tears, praying for God to move now on this earth, right? Um, but I want to say this morning that our lament has an end. We will not be people who lament forever. Lament has an end date. That's what the beginning of 19 is talking about. That's what it's showing. It's this image of the great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God, for his judgments are true and just. And then there's this voice, and it comes from, The throne, it says, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Finally, God has removed evil and injustice, and he has answered all of our prayers. He has answered all our laments, and you and I stand there as the people of God, and we say, we didn't put our trust in money. We didn't put our trust in our country. We didn't put our trust in our standing in society. We didn't put our trust in perceived power. We didn't put our trust in our spouses. We didn't put our trust in our children. We didn't put our trust in anything. We put our trust in Jesus Christ. And now our faith has been turned to sight. Now our hope is realized and now the love of the triune God we see and know and experience in full this is how we as the church do not become seduced by Babylon it's by knowing that we have Jesus he is ours and he has purchased our salvation and he has united us with himself all I have needed, thou hast provided. Great is thy faithfulness. The future is not one of injustice. The future is not one of lament. The future is not one of nations who abuse their power. The future is one of the kingdom of God and the reign of Jesus Christ and us, God's people, saying hallelujah. Rescue and salvation has come.